Last week we traveled with Paul as he made the long journey from Greece back to Jerusalem. And in every city the Spirit testified that imprisonment and affliction were waiting for him there. Constrained by the Spirit, Paul pressed on to carry the name of Jesus before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, a gospel Paul valued more than his own life. We ended with Paul arriving in Jerusalem, and this morning we learn what happens to him there. So let me pray for us before we do that. O Lord our God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love that we may be obedient to your will and live always for your glory through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. The first thing that Paul does when he gets to Jerusalem is to visit the believers there. Acts 21.17 tells us that they received him gladly, and Luke tells us specifically that they rejoiced to hear of all that God had done among the Gentiles. But they also warn, Paul, that this work is causing concern for some of the Jews who have begun to follow Jesus. And so they say to Paul in verse 20, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. That's the charge laid against Paul. Now, Luke doesn't tell us how Paul responds when he hears this. Is there a basis for this charge? Well, we can look at Paul's letters and we can see what he teaches there. Galatians 5, 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In Romans 7, 4, he says, You have died to the law, through the body of Christ. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So you can see how Paul's teaching could inspire such a charge. But the charge also seems to contain a falsehood or a slander, because from what we read in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters, Paul hasn't been going around trying to get Jewish believers to stop doing these things. I mean, Paul himself circumcised Timothy so as not to offend the Jews among whom they were ministering. But to be clear, Paul has spoken out strongly against the notion that many Jewish believers held in his day that Gentiles had to be circumcised, that they had to observe the Jewish customs in order to be saved. That the Gentiles had to essentially become Jewish in order to be saved. We saw this in Acts 15. There was a great controversy about it. So Paul has railed against that teaching because it makes salvation dependent on something other than Jesus or on something in addition to Jesus. But Paul is always crystal clear on this point. Salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. But still, all along, Paul has allowed Jewish Christians to continue to observe the Jewish customs if they wish. So the charge is not accurate. 
It certainly is not charitable, but it has been leveled against Paul nonetheless. You see, the truth is that these rites and these customs had become an idol for many Jews in the first century to the point that their whole identity was wrapped up in these things. So any, any threat to these idols of the heart was met with rage and violent suppression. But the elders of the church have an idea how Paul should respond. 21 verse 22, the elders say, What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. And Paul follows the elders' counsel, and he does this. And this is Paul putting into practice what he describes in 1 Corinthians 9, which we heard about uh, so well in Sunday school this morning. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And so we see Paul living that out here in Acts 21. He's living as one under the law in order to win those under the law. Unfortunately, this time it doesn't work. Verse 27 tells us when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, likely from Ephesus, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. And they go on to level more false charges against Paul. Specifically, they accuse him of bringing Gentiles into the temple grounds, which was against the unbiblical laws of that day. Now again, Paul did not do this, but they accused him nonetheless. Verse 30, Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut, and they were seeking to kill him. Now, Paul said that he was ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. It looks like he's about to get his chance. But then we read verse 31. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Now you see, there was a fortress on the temple wall where Roman soldiers were quartered. And from the tower, they had a view of everything that would go on in the temple grounds and the courtyard. So they could respond quickly when there was a disturbance like this, which kind of happened pretty often. And this tribune, he's in charge of a thousand soldiers. And it was his job to keep the peace in Jerusalem. Verse 32 says, He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now this is significant. This is Gentile Romans protecting the Apostle Paul from his fellow Jews. And it's important to note this because this is a prominent biblical theme, especially in the New Testament. 
Now, see, we know that Rome ended up persecuting Christians later in the first century. We know that from our perspective on history. So we sometimes think of the Romans as the bad guys. But actually, in the New Testament, it is almost always their fellow Jews who are persecuting and trying to kill the apostles. And it is usually the Gentile Romans who end up protecting the church. This can also be seen as a way Jesus relives his life in the life of his church. You'll remember that the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, did not want to crucify Jesus. He tried to protect Jesus. He offered to release Jesus. But it was Jesus' fellow Jews who demanded he be crucified. So Rome is not the problem in the New Testament. The problem in the New Testament is among God's own people, Israel. They crucified the Messiah. And in the book of Acts, many of them continue to reject Jesus by rejecting his apostles. And so this Roman tribune, he saves Paul from being murdered here. Verse 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. So what we see here is the same kind of confusion that we saw during that riot in Ephesus a couple weeks ago. You remember that? Paul threatened their idols by preaching that their great goddess Artemis was no real god. And that drove them crazy with anger. And there was confusion, riotous confusion. It was a new Tower of Babel. That same thing is happening here. The tribune could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. And when Paul came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. This cry, away with him. It's actually the same Greek phrase the crowd spoke at Jesus' trial. Luke 23, 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. Jesus is reliving his life in the life of the Apostle Paul. But before Paul is taken into the Roman barracks where he can be protected the tribune allows him to make a speech in his defense. And so, standing on the steps of the Roman barracks, Paul silences the crowd, and he speaks to them in their own language. And he starts by telling them his testimony. This is chapter 22 now, verse 3. Paul says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, do you notice that everything Paul said there is essentially identifying him with these same people who are attacking him? Right? Like Saul, they think they are true Jews. They think they are being strict in their observance of the law. 
they think they are demonstrating zeal for God. They've found a heretic, and they have brought him in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Isn't that exactly what Saul had been doing before his conversion? But something happened to Saul. Paul goes on, verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. You see, Paul was just like his accusers until the light of heaven blinded him. And the risen and ascended Jesus appeared to him and spoke to him. Jesus revealed to Paul that when Paul was persecuting the Christians, he was actually persecuting Jesus. For the body of believers is the body of Christ. And so that meant that Paul was attacking God's anointed king. How could one who claimed to be zealous for God attack God's Messiah? So do you see the implications of this story for all these people who have accused Paul and are trying to kill him? It's as if Paul is saying to them, I was just like you. But my eyes were open to see that I was actually persecuting the Messiah. We thought we had killed him. But now he is risen. He is alive and he spoke to me. What could I do but repent and tell the world what I'd seen? Paul is hoping that the Jews will see themselves in his story. He's hoping that they too will see the light. But will they? He goes on, giving another appeal, showing another way he used to be just like them. He talks about how he watched as, as Stephen was stoned to death. Surely people would be amazed by the change in his life from that day till now. But the Lord also told Paul that Jerusalem still would not listen to him. And then Paul recounts one more thing that Jesus told him. Verse 21. He said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Oh, Paul. Why did you have to say that? Don't you know? This is the very thing these people want to kill you for. It's like Paul pulled the pin out of a grenade and just dropped it at the crowd's feet. Verse 22 tells us, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Up to this word, they listened to him. But then Paul says the word, Gentiles, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And their eyes slam shut again, and darkness floods back in, and anger boils up and boils over once again. Paul poked the idol, didn't he? He poked that idol that all these people worshipped, the idol of their ethnic identity, their cherished traditions, their theological superiority. The Gentiles? 
They don't circumcise. They don't keep the law. They are unclean. The Gentiles are the ones who have invaded our land, and they're the ones who are oppressing us. You claim that God has sent you so that the Gentiles can enter freely into this kingdom without observing our laws and traditions? Away with this man. He doesn't deserve to live. Just as we saw in Ephesus, this idol has a death grip on their hearts. And when that idol is threatened, they respond in anger and in violence. Now, the poor Roman tribune, he can't make heads or tails of what's going on here. For one thing, he probably doesn't understand the language in which Paul gives his speech. For another, he doesn't understand Jewish culture at the time and why they're so upset about this one guy and what he's saying. He thinks like a Roman. All right, how are we going to get to the truth of this matter? Well, we should examine the witness. Well, how do we examine witnesses? Oh, we flog them until they confess. That's the Roman way. And so they stretch Paul out for the whips. But wait, Paul says in verse 25, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? The tribune knows that it is not lawful, and he could get into big trouble for this. Verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him, which he also wasn't supposed to do. So once again, Gentile Rome proves to be Paul's protector, even protecting him from Rome itself. Well, if we can't understand what he's saying and we can't flog him, I guess we're going to have to get the Jewish authorities involved, see if they can settle this. So the tribune takes Paul before the chief priests and the elders. But what he's really done is given Paul an audience. Because Paul is called to preach the gospel before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now he gets his chance. But do you see that this opportunity only came about because Paul was willing to go to Jerusalem, though everyone told him he would be afflicted and imprisoned. It was only through his coming to Jerusalem, it was only through his arrest and false accusations that Paul was given this audience before the rulers of Israel. You see how God uses the suffering of his chosen one to bring the gospel to the world. This is chapter 23 now, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth for claiming such bold things. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Jesus is reliving his life in the life of his church. We saw in our gospel reading this morning that Jesus too was dragged before the Jewish council and falsely accused. Jesus was struck on the mouth by one of the temple guard. 
He rebuked Jesus for the way Jesus spoke to the high priest. Now Paul is the one dragged before the council. Now he is the one being rebuked for speaking truth to the high priest. As they treated the master, so will they treat the servant. Well, it's not looking good for Paul. I don't know if you know, but it's not great to be a prophet in Jerusalem. It doesn't usually end well. There seems to be no chance that he will receive a fair hearing. So Paul, who is innocent as a dove, shows that he is also shrewd as a serpent. And he sees that among the council members, part of them are members of the Sadducee party and part are Pharisees. And he knows that they don't get along with each other. And so he cries out, verse 6, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. It's a clever move on Paul's part, because he does preach the resurrection. He preached that the Pharisees' hope for a future resurrection of all Israel at the end of the age, he preaches that that had already broken into the present in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. But you'll notice that when he brings this up, neither the Pharisees nor the Sadducees are astonished to hear that the Messiah has come. No one wants to know more about this man who rose from the dead. For them, Paul's announcement simply offers another occasion to debate their pet theological issues. Again, the result is this Tower of Babel-like confusion. This is what happens when the gospel threatens our idols. Verse 10, when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The Lord Jesus appears to Paul once again, just as he did on the road to Damascus some 30 years before. And Jesus encourages Paul. Jesus tells him he will not die here. Remember Paul's calling. He must, he must preach the gospel not only to the children of Israel, but to the Gentiles and kings. Well, Rome is the ruler of the known world at this time. Jesus assures Paul that he will live to fulfill his mission. It will not be accomplished until he has borne witness about Jesus in Rome. So Paul is going to Rome. Verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Again, this is Jesus reliving his life in the life of his church over and over in the Gospels. We see how the religious leaders conspire together to murder Jesus, and they do the same with Paul. But the Roman tribune hears of this plot, and once again, he saves Paul's life. 
He provides Paul with an armed escort to take him to Caesarea, where Paul will have an audience with the governor, Felix. And this sets Paul on that road to Rome, just as the Lord promised him. And that's where we will pick up Paul's journey when we return to Acts next Easter tide. Now, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, but I wanted to give us kind of a big picture view of Paul's time in Jerusalem and treat it as a whole because it's all connected. And the main theme that I want us to see there is this. Israel's rejection of the gospel means the gospel goes out to the whole world. Israel's rejection of the gospel means the gospel goes out to the whole world. We saw that the church in Jerusalem rejoiced over the ministry of Paul among the Gentiles. But for many Jews, this was a huge stumbling block. And that's because they had lost sight of the reason God marked them out as his special people. Israel was supposed to be a city on a hill, a light for the world. The temple was to be a house of prayer for the nations, not keeping the nations out. But instead, the religious leaders had built this wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. They kept Gentiles at a distance, walled them off from the temple, and laid impossible demands on them if they did want to worship Yahweh. It goes against what God commanded them to do. And so Israel rejects the gospel. So God sends the gospel to the Gentiles. He sends Paul to the Gentiles. He uses Gentile Romans to protect his apostles. He gives Paul these audiences before kings and rulers. What we see in this part of Acts is Israel rejecting the gospel, resulting in the gospel going to the whole world. That's what Paul himself says in Romans 11. He says, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but from life from the dead? We already saw Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is the thing that most angers his fellow Jews and makes them want to murder him. You would think he would want to minimize this aspect of his ministry to protect himself. But Paul says he magnifies his ministry to the Gentiles. We saw him do that today, right? Boldly preaching that Jesus sent him to the Gentiles when that was the very reason those people were trying to kill him. Why does he do that? He wants to provoke his fellow Jews. He wants to provoke them. He wants to wake them up. He wants them to be blinded by the light, by the revelation of the risen Jesus, the Savior of the world, so that his own people will repent and claim Jesus as Lord as he did. He wants them to have that same experience. If God's rejection of Israel has meant the gospel went out to redeem the world, what would it then mean if God brought Israel back to himself? It would mean all the Saul's become Paul's. It would mean life from the dead. It would mean resurrection for all. And so Paul will continue to preach the gospel. He will continue to magnify his ministry to the Gentiles. He will continue to put himself in harm's way. 
more afflictions and imprisonments await. But God will move even the mightiest empire in the world to protect and preserve his church that the gospel of grace can continue to break down walls of hostility and bring both Jew and Gentile into the household of God. So a couple brief applications for us today. First, what idols in our hearts have become an obstacle to the gospel going forth? Probably no one here is too concerned about circumcision or eating pork, right, as the people in Paul's day were. But what are the extras that we add to the gospel? What are the rules and customs that we set up in front of Jesus and act as though salvation depended on these things when it doesn't? Certain behaviors, certain theological positions, certain denominations, certain political stances, whatever it is. Maybe these things are good things in their proper place, but have we moved them from their proper place? Have we made them into stumbling blocks that stand between Jesus and a world that desperately needs him? If you're not sure what the idols of your heart are, here's a way to discover them. What makes you mad? What boils your blood the way the word Gentile boiled the blood of the crowd in Jerusalem? What sets you off so that you can't even think straight anymore? And when you identify that thing, ask, why does this make me so angry? Is it because there's something here that I'm looking to for, for my comfort, for security, for affection, for safety, for love? Am I looking to this thing as an idol for those gifts which only God can give? If so, ask God's forgiveness and seek to turn from that idol and give that devotion to Christ and Christ alone. The second and final application is this. What was it that allowed Paul to face the rejection and the affliction and the suffering he endured? Wasn't it that vision and that voice of the risen Jesus. In Jesus, Paul saw the radiance of God. He saw the hope for humanity. He beheld the righteous one who had died and yet lived again and was now working through his people to bring reconciliation and resurrection to the world. Now we might wish that we could have a vision like that, like Paul did, that we could hear the Lord speak directly to us, coming to us in the night and encouraging us as he did, the Apostle Paul. But for us, Jesus does this through his word and sacraments. By hearing and eating in faith, we behold Jesus as the Apostle Paul did. Each Sunday and throughout the week as we hear his word, the Lord comes to us and strengthens us and encourages us. And as we see him more clearly, we are given a vision of our own destiny. For Jesus lives his whole life in the life of his church. Humility and exaltation, rejection and glory, death and resurrection. And as Paul says, one day Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
So let us continue to cultivate and hold that vision of Christ before our eyes together, that we too might have strength to endure the afflictions of this fallen world. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for reliving your life in the life of Paul, that we might have a second witness to your glory. Shatter the idols of our hearts, that we not be blinded to the gospel of grace. Reveal yourself to us in your word and sacraments, that we might be encouraged to endure all trials. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.